Hello and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic episode 23. I'm Nick Dixon and I'm joined by Scourge of the Establishment, Mr. Toby Young. He just wrote that intro for himself because I couldn't think of a funny one. Coming up, Liz Truss is back, kind of. Dominic Raab is an evil bully and the Grammys pledge allegiance to Satan, plus our top stories of the week with Will and of course, Peak Woke and much more. Toby, let's start with um, old Truss because she came back, she wrote a long essay about why she was kind of not to blame for anything. She was like, she kept saying a little bit like, oh, I, you know, I did make mistakes. I didn't make mistakes. But mainly it's the Bank of England and the Treasury and the blob. That was pretty much what I got from it. Yes. Um, I mean, one of the surprising things, I think, I mean, there have been lots of predictable reactions. You know, of course, she's trying to blame everyone else. Um, she hasn't accepted responsibility. She's delusional. Doesn't she realize she's out of date? Uh, her Thatcher Tribute Act was always going to sink like a stone. But the surprising thing is that quite a few people have actually taken the kind of kernel of her defense quite seriously. And the kernel of her defense is that, you know, the um, market turmoil that essentially did for her uh, wasn't caused by her mini budget, wasn't caused by, you know, uncosted tax breaks and her energy support package in the mini budget. Um, The markets weren't spooked by that. Uh, They were spooked by um, the Bank of England. Um, uh, both failing to regulate um, the degree to which big pension funds were becoming increasingly dependent on um, liability-driven investment funds, um, uh, and um, and also the Bank of England's inadequate attempts to try and um, uh, put out the fire that um, rising gilt yields had um, lit underneath these pension funds, effectively forcing them to um, sell their UK 30-year government bonds in order to meet their borrowing obligations because they'd essentially taken a massive punt on these LDI funds and these collateral calls were being made by the lenders and they were all going to take, well, they were beginning to take these kind of huge baths. Um, And uh, and the Bank of England tried to address this problem a couple of days, a day before the mini-budget was revealed. Um, and they did it inadequately. And in any event, it was their fault for being asleep at the wheel when all these pension funds were becoming dependent on these kind of fancy financial instruments, which they clearly didn't really understand. Um, uh, so they were asleep at the wheel. They tried to correct course, but they did it inadequately. And that's what spooked the markets. That was the primary cause of the turmoil in the markets that just happened to coincide with the mini budget. So uh, you sort of think, well, you know, she's trying to pass the buck, blame the Bank of England. Is anyone really going to buy this? Surprisingly, a lot of quite serious people have bought it, or at least they've taken it more seriously than, you know, the people who've dismissed her essay. She wrote this 4,000 word essay in the Sunday Telegraph um, uh, uh, would have expected. So Robert Peston on Sunday said she has a point about um, LD, LDIs um, uh, uh, posing a huge risk to pension funds and to the British economy more generally. Um, And the Bank of England and the pensions regulator should have done something about this, and they didn't. And that did contribute to the market turmoil. So Peston sort of half accepted um, uh, her her analysis. And today, Patrick Patrick Hoskin, um, the economics editor of The Times, um, he's weighed in and said, I think think she's onto something here too. Um, And, you know, the Bank of England and the pensions regulator need to do something about this. Um, So, you know, uh, and John Moynihan, who is who's absolutely mastered this issue, he was one of the first people to pick up on it. Wrote a piece in the Critic last year, 
about how it wasn't really Truss's fault that the markets were plunged into turmoil. It was Bank of England's fault, the pension regulator fault. Um, he's written another follow-up piece for CapEx, uh, which is an even deeper dive into the um, role that uh, dependency on LDIs played in that little financial crisis, um, which is very good. And it's a kind of primer on what LDIs are and um, exactly why they're very dangerous. And it, apparently the, the, the colloquial term for bets like an LDI bet in the markets is the widow maker, because they can destroy you. And particularly, they destroy naive, um, inexperienced investors who think they're going to make a quick buck only to realize that um, they're on the hook for a lot more than they're hoping to gain. Um, anyway, um, so uh, yeah, I think it's it's been quite interesting. And I expect that to be I, I mean, it would be good if um, this um, uh, this this analysis of what went wrong uh, gets even more credibility, and there is a proper investigation into the role of the Bank of England and the pensions regulator in in causing this financial crisis. Yeah, well, I did understand LDIs for an evening because my brother explained it to me, and then I had to go on headliners and talk about it, and I was incredibly knowledgeable for that evening. But I've forgotten it all now because it it wasn't real deep knowledge. It was <laughs> me just parroting it for one night because economics is kind of my weak point. I'm able to understand it, you know, in, in, in a short term way, and then it immediately falls out of my brain again and is replaced by, you know, thoughts about Andrew Tate and things like that. But it, it's a struggle for me. But she was basically they were one thing that the Bank of England seemed to be blaming at the time was the lack of communication about the. Supply, projected supply side reforms, the so-called unfunded tax cuts, etc. And she's basically just put it back on them and said, um, in, if brewing in the background, there was an issue relating to pension funds you've just described, which neither of us have been made aware of, her and Quarteng. And you think that's a bit weird that they, but is it, on, is it on them to know about it? And then she says, I fully admit our communication could have been better. As I said, during the leadership campaign, I'm not the slickest communicator. And you kind of think, don't you have to be though, really, to be the prime minister? And then she basically blames the OBR as well and says that they it's set up so that we just sort of tinker in a top-down way instead of having ground-up change that she wanted and that it's, it's just rigged for like little tinkering. And it's kind of... And that all seemed quite reasonable. There is something... And lastly, there is something quite English about it all, is it the way that we just booted out to us and now everyone's going, do you know what? She actually had a point. Like, we love a comeback. We love to tear someone down and then, then have a comeback. And like you say, quite a few people are writing these articles like, was Trust right about Trustonomics? Yeah, I think she's. I think it was wise of her to leave it this long. I mean, she's essentially left it a hundred days. She in office for like forty-four days or something. I mean, it's it's supposed to be you know Rishi Sunak celebrating his first hundred days in office, but she's got in there first with you know the hundredth day after she resigned. I guess the day before, uh, or maybe a few. That's kind of like if you're in for five years. So that's like if you're in for five years and you've waited ten years proportionally, isn't it? Like she's waiting double is. the yeah, length of her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I don't think I don't think she would have got any kind of hearing if she'd have come out with this analysis immediately after her demise. Um, but I think she's left it now long enough to get a hearing, and she is getting a hearing. Some people that you wouldn't expect, like Robert Peston and Patrick Hoskin, um, seemingly are taking this analysis quite seriously. Although in a way, it's just a way for them to attack Sunak now, isn't it? They attacked trust then for wanting growth and to cut taxes. Now they can use trust to attack Sunak for saying that you're an idiot to want to cut taxes. Isn't it just their constant attack on the Tory government? I guess. Um, 
but but the 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 initial analysis, which is that you know her low tax, high growth strategy, um, which involved not raising corporation tax, not increasing the national insurance burden on employers, cutting the top rate of income tax. Um, that 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 was what did for the British economy. That sent the gilt markets into a tailspin. The pound began to plummet against the dollar, and the kind of the narrative became: if you try and pursue a genuinely low tax, pro growth agenda, the markets won't wear it, and you know you'll jeopardise the financial health of UK PLC. So it's quite important, I think, that we get this analysis right because, after all. We hope that at some point in the not too distant future, there'll be another genuinely conservative leader of the Conservative Party who wants to pursue a high growth, low tax agenda. Uh, and we hope that it'll be possible and people won't be able to point to what happens when Liz Truss pursued it and say, no, no, the markets won't, won't wear this because that's not, in fact, what happened. That's not why the markets reacted as badly as they did. They weren't reacting to a mini budget. They were reacting to something else. Yeah, yeah, so it lays the groundwork for someone to actually try and do it properly. I mean, she said, I'm not, bla- not claiming to be blameless in what happened. But fundamentally, I was not given a realistic chance to enact my policies by a very powerful economic establishment, the deep state, <laughs> she doesn't say that, coupled with a lack of political support. I assumed upon entering Downing Street that my mandate would be respected and accepted how wrong I was. While I anticipated resistance to my program from the system, she almost does say the deep state there, I underestimated the extent of it. Similarly, I underestimated the resistance inside the Conservative Parliamentary Party to move to a lower tax, less regulated economy. So it is, it is kind of it's a pretty scathing attack on... Yeah. If you point to you know the role of the Bank of England in bringing about her demise, I guess that kind of fuels you know the the, the deep state coup conspiracy theory. But I don't think that's what happened. I don't think the Bank of England were deliberately trying to sabotage Truss's administration by inadequately dealing with this crisis that they'd effectively caused by their own inaction um, a couple of days before the mini budget. Um, I just think it was general, it was incompetence and cock up and the head of the Bank of England was just asleep at the wheel. Apparently his his nickname is Lullaby because he often falls asleep in important meetings when things like LDIs are being discussed. Uh, this is, um, uh, so I think it was cock up rather than conspiracy. But I think insofar as there was a conspiratorial element, I think lots of her enemies, lots of the people who hate her, kind of leapt on this opportunity to discredit her and bring her down when people began to link the market turmoil to her mini budget. Um, And uh, she was sort of persuaded, I think, at the time that um, her mini budget was a, a big contributory factor. And that's why she rode back on the cut in the highest rate of tax and sacked Quasi Kwarteng um, and felt that she had to resign to restore confidence to the markets and the rest of it. Um, but um, insofar as, you know, all these heavy hitting economists and financial journalists and the mainstream media more generally leapt on this narrative, I think that gave conspirators within the Parliamentary Conservative Party an excuse to start manoeuvring to oust her and stick Rishi in in her place. Okay, and I'll just say it was a WEF coup for balance. Um, So (laughs) do you want to go on to the reshuffle, Toby? Because I think we've covered that pretty well. And we don't want to talk about LDIs the whole episode. So they've done this, Rishi's had this reshuffle. Greg Hans is the new chairman. Didn't know much about him. You were hoping to be chairman, Toby. Didn't didn't pan out. They've given it to Greg Hands, who I don't know anything about, except he's a bit of a lib. But Lee Anderson has become deputy chairman in a kind of attempt to balance, you know, much more, you know, sort of, what would you call him? He, he's sort of red wall type person. And interestingly, Kemi has got a an even bigger role. She's going to be business and trade secretary. 
Michelle Donlan has moved from culture to science, innovation and tech. And Lucy Fraser has moved into culture. I mean, I'm not really sure. I mean, with Lee Anderson and Greg Hans, it's sort of people are suggesting it's that kind of broad church reshuffle. Any thoughts on this? Well, I guess one thought I had is that, you know, uh, various departments have been broken up into pieces and then the pieces have been reassembled to create new departments. Um, So um, business and energy has been broken up and um, uh, business has been added to Kemi's brief. So it becomes the Department for International Trade and Business Um, and energy um, has been added to um, net zero. I mean, really, it's become a standalone department, but they've had net zero. So it's now the Department for Energy Security and net zero, which sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that a contradiction in terms? How can we how can we make Britain um, uh, energy secure and pursue um, a right. net zero policy. I mean, the two are completely at loggerheads with each other. It's a bit like calling Kemi's department the Department for International Trade and Protectionism. You know, it's like, how could I don't envy the uh, new cabinet energy secretary for having to reconcile these two completely conflicting aims. Um, and even but worse, it's typical it's of the kind Shaps. of double thick. It's, it's Grant Shapps, yeah. <laughs> I saw Stuart Lee. Um, who I'm not generally a fan of, Um, he did write once in in his Observer column, I think it was possibly the only funny column he's ever written in the Observer, but it was a column about um, uh, how he'd first met Grant Shapps. And it was, he was a kind of, uh, I know, a fish bait salesman in which he was creating these vending machines, which you could get kind of live fish bait out of. Uh, And this was how he got his start as a businessman. And, uh, and it was, it was all made up, but it was actually quite funny. Um, And it was, but, but uh, yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I think Shaps is okay. Um, uh, I'm not a Shaps hater, Um, but uh, yeah. Well, you know everyone, that's your problem. You you probably know him. You probably go and play shooting with him or something. Play shooting's not a thing. You, You probably do shooting weekends. Well, one thing I remember when I when I was um, setting up when I was trying to set up preschools, um, the when I started out in two thousand and nine, um, what is now the Department for Education was the Department for Children's Schools and Families, so the DCSF, known colloquially internally as the Department for Chairs and Soft Furnishings, um, and then the DCSF became the Department for Education. But before it became the DCSF, it had been the Department for Education and Skills, and before that, the Department of Education. It seemed to change its name, you know, um, uh, once every couple of years. And I thought, you know, all these departments are constantly reinventing themselves. And it's all to do with reshuffles and trying to kind of placate various big egos and so forth. But if you had the kind of the headed paper concession in Westminster, where, where you know, which had a kind of contract with Whitehall, whereby every time a department changed its name, they had to kind of pulp all the expensive headed paper and note cards and business cards they'd had printed with the department's name on it and commission you to produce a whole new lot of these things. You could be, I mean, whoever does have that concession must be driving a gold-plated Rolls-Royce and have a home in the Bahamas by now. I mean, the amount of money they waste by just having to get new stationery every few weeks must be extraordinary. Yeah, I I never thought of that, Toby. But but the other thing I never thought of was that, that energy security and net zero thing. You're right. That is like the department for losing weight and eating eating ice cream, isn't it? Losing yeah. weight and eating Ben and Jerry's department. I, it's, it's a great point. <laughs> Net zero is a terrible idea. Runs against our energy security. Um, any thoughts on any of the other people? I mean, it, some of it's quite just a pointless reshuffle, isn't it? 
quite bland, isn't it? Someone going into is Lucy Fraser going to be better at culture than Michelle Donald? I've got no idea. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I quite like Michelle Donald, and you know, she she certainly listened to the Free Speech Union's concerns about the online safety bill and did try and improve it a little bit. Um, so I'm slightly disappointed that she's gone, and I, uh, I guess one slightly worrying thing is that she had owned the changes she'd made to the online safety bill you know she was out there defending it she was saying you know she was defending getting rid of the kind of legal some of the legal but harmful stuff and making it just slightly less anti-free speech than it was so my worry is that if rishi has moved her does that mean that he wants to make more concessions to the censors you know there's a risk that the online safety bill will become this kind of legislative christmas tree in which all these lobby groups who want to censor misogyny or hate or misinformation or whatever it might have they describe uh, the expression of anything they disagree with they'll want to kind of hang all these kind of censorship policies on this Christmas tree. And my worry is that with Michelle gone and Lucy Fraser, and not because Lucy Fraser has a reputation for being less pro-free speech than Michelle Donnellan, although I think she probably is, um, but just because, you know, it makes it politically easier. If Michelle Donnellan has said, no, I draw the line, I'm not going to move on this. Uh, if she then goes, it makes the whole thing much more um, up in the air. Yeah. And it is very important, the online safety bill. And, and, and reducing Ofcom's role both online and on TV broadcasting. I mean, that's all I'll say about that. I think Ofcom people, people always, you know, people are worried about free speech stuff. It's true with Ofcom regulating TV broadcasters and the internet, we don't have free speech, and that is a serious thing. But you've got to attack it like Toby does at the policy level, I believe. So yeah, do you want to talk about Dominic Raab briefly? Because uh, he, he's there's this ridiculous thing going around. I can't remember who 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 actually released this initially. It's been going around Twitter someone talking about Raab on the inside and this alleged bullying that Dominic Raab did. And it said it wasn't shouting, throwing things about the room. It was more insidious, particularly with junior staff. He could be very icy. He'd be given a piece of paper and there would be a silence and he'd say, this isn't good enough. <laughs> the official would be stammering uh, uh, and he'd be saying, this isn't right. It's not good enough. I can't accept this. You don't have to be physically aggressive for people to be scared. <laughs> This is the idea yeah, of bullying in 2023. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, you'd think that these various civil servants who are complaining about being bullied by Dominic Robb, you know, I mean, one of the one of the complaints, I don't know if you, you, you spotted this, Nick, but one of the complaints is that he didn't recognize Nish Kumar. <laughs> it's like uh, that that was apparently an act of unspeakable aggression asking who Nish Kumar was when Nish Kumar was brought up by one of his civil servants possibly as someone you know um uh he should employ um uh to as as a kind of informal british ambassador or something wow. a, a, ambassador for british trade or something um yeah he moved meetings forward uh, another source of complaint was um uh he disagreed with Gina Miller on question time um, I mean, it's uh, yeah, and he 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 would insist on precise spelling and grammar on official documents. I mean, what a Nazi! You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, you'd think this would be you know everything I read about what he's supposedly the the, the bullying things he's supposedly done. I think, well, thank God, you know, someone is upholding standards at the Foreign Office. You know, um, I mean. Not, not, not knowing who Nish Kumar was, that shouldn't be a disqualification for being Britain's foreign secretary. I would have thought knowing who Nish Kumar is would be a disqualification, but maybe that's just me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's mad. I mean, you've got one of the most important jobs in the government. It's like, hang on, you, you're not watching Nish Kumar's new DVD or whatever it is these days. 
Yeah, that's absolutely insane. And where did you get? Where did that come from? That Nishikuma revelation. That came from. It was on. There was a list of his various crimes on Guido Fawkes um, yesterday morning. I think. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, that I mean, but the thing is, will he stay? Because it'll just be Sunak has already implied there'll be an investigation, and if he's found to have been bullying, then I'll get rid of. You know, just just like Zahawi got rid of him. Then again, some people he has stood by, like Suella Braverman. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, is well, he gonna... yeah I mean, well, I would have thought um, the fact that the reshuffle has occurred now and he hasn't waited for the outcome of the bullying investigation into Dominic Raab suggests that Dominic Raab is safe because if he was going to move him, he'd wait and, and, and reshuffle after, you know, the committee had produced its damning verdict and he decided that Rob had to go. Um, you know, the, the reason he's having this reshuffle now is partly because um, Nadim Zahawi has gone as chairman of the party and, you know, he won't want to have a reshuffle now and then do another one in a couple of weeks' time um, when, you know, when the verdict uh, is delivered on Rob. So I would imagine he's decided that, that Rob is safe um, and so he has the reshuffle now. All right, fair enough. Well, that's a little, maybe that was too much on the Tory party for some of you guys, but don't worry because we're going to move on now to a very important issue and it's the Satanic Grammys. So you probably saw this, I mean, because it's been all over Twitter. It's very hard to ignore it. Sam Smith was at the Grammys dressed up as the devil with doing lots of devilly things and it's all kicked off on Twitter. Ted Cruz has said it's evil. Many people have said the same. Others have just said it's lame and embarrassing and totes cringe. My th- my little take was, because we're losing the battle for free speech anyway, I would reintroduce blasphemy laws and have these people thrown in jail just for the bans, really. I mean, you know, <laughs> because you, you, in the past you couldn't go around praising Satan and we had a better society then. So that's what I would do. I'd just put them all in jail. And I uh, don't know about you, Toby, you're probably going to go more with the it's just a bit cringe angle. Well, it, yeah, that, that that that's very much my view. I don't think that he's literally being controlled by Satan, Satan, or that we have to worry that um, you know um, uh, uh, there is a satanic cult within the entertainment industry. Uh, rather, he's just kind of you know he just seems to me to be like a kind of B Tech Mick Jagger uh, doing a poor impression of um, Mick Jagger in his heyday. I mean, you know, popular music has always flirted with the occult and Satanism, hence. Tibigore's famous campaign to try and get various um, uh, classic rock and heavy metal albums banned. Um, I, it's always just been part of the kind of, um, you know, the kind of razzmatazz, the flim flam, um, the spin associated with rock and roll. Even Elvis Presley in his day, his music was described as devil music. Um, and his kind of dance moves were thought to be kind of licentious and sexually alarming and a little bit satanic. Um, but it seems to me that that's all been played out and it reached its apotheosis in the 1960s and 70s. And for Sam Smith to try and revive it in this kind of rather unimaginative way just seems to be a kind of retread of something that's already completely played out and just shows how boring and unimaginative and bland Sam Smith is. He's tried to reinvent himself as this kind of sexually confused provocateur but actually he's it's it's just the same old black it's just like it's kind of like the satanic equivalent of elevator music you know it, it, it doesn't really doesn't really i it doesn't really i don't really i can't really find myself to, i can't work myself up about it i'm not that worked up but it, is there something more sinister about it i haven't quite put my finger on it yet to be honest, i haven't devoted enough thought to it really but the in the past perhaps it's the lack of artistic merit 
which we discussed last week with Sam Smith's video. There used to be artistic merit and then there was edginess and David Bowie and people were, were edgy, but they were actually good. Now they're not good. It, but it, also it just seems they're just sort of wallowing and like they're sort of thrusting in your face like the how just how decadent they can be. I mean, most of the culture is that now. So there is something annoying about it. And something, and something genuinely decadent yeah, about it. Well, it isn't what's annoying about it is that, you know, when Mick Jagger sang Sympathy for the Devil, when David Bowie dressed as a woman, um, that was genuinely countercultural. That was, um, you know, uh, uh, risky. You know, it was in a way quite brave. You know, and it was making a point. It was extending the frontiers of what's acceptable. It was shocking in order to um, create more creative freedom for those artists and other artists. Now, dressing up as the devil and com- singing a song called Unholy is completely with the grain of our culture. There's nothing countercultural about it. This now is where mainstream culture is. If they wanted to be genuinely bold and actually extend the creative frontiers for other artists they praise christianity you know um they dress up as jesus you know i mean it, it, it rather than the devil there was a good there was a good meme in which um it had um uh, sam smith with these kind of devil horns on and the kind of red hellscape backdrop that was uh, that was labeled normal and then there was a kind of a painting of a of a a nuclear family in church in the 1950s, little boy wearing a tie, little girl in a nice summer dress, and they were labelled extremists. And that's where we are now, which is why it's not edgy, it's not courageous, there's nothing countercultural about it. It is the mainstream. This is the garbage that's being thrust down everyone's throat, wherever they turn, schools, universities, um, museums, libraries. You know, This is now the culture. There's nothing countercultural about it. It's just yet more state propaganda and that's exactly it. and i was about to reference that same meme which i just remembered as well yeah with the nice family being called extremists and that's what's so disgusting about it yeah the culture itself promoting every kind of decadence it can rather than it being countercultural as you say though that does also raise the question of were we wrong in the past to welcome all these kind of edgy countercultural things were they actually satanic i mean maybe Christ- hardcore christians were right all along i'm a christian but maybe we were right all along to think that Elvis's hips were subversive you know it makes me think we were right all along because because this is where it's Mary Whitehouse was right (laughs) yeah yeah that's sort of where I am with it and it's interesting Matt Walsh said here it's not surprising to see a satanic ritual at the Grammys Satanism is the worship of the self much of modern pop music is satanic in this sense leftism is Satanism the only change is that now they're being more explicit about it theological Satanism is not very common but the worship of the self what we might call secular Satanism is the predominant religion in our culture, and most of the art we produce is meant to preach this gospel. And that's pretty well put. That's kind but of. I, I think look on the bright side. Um, you know, the fact that this is now the culture makes people like us, who are pro-family, um, pro-biological reality, um, <laughs> pro-growth, pro-low taxes. Um, we are now, you know, the countercultural pioneers. We're the brave warriors out there, kind of creating the space for others to follow in our footsteps. Uh, you know, we're we're rock and we're we're the real rock and roll heroes now. Um, Sam Smith is basically the Mary Whitehouse equivalent um, yeah. uh, of of our day, um, and and in a way, you know, it, it, it makes life more fun for people like us 
to be kind of at the cutting edge of the counterculture, just in virtue of being a little bit conservative. Um, whereas, you know, 50 years ago, being a little bit conservative would have made us slap bang in the mainstream and life would have been perhaps a little more boring. Yeah, I've said for ages, saying your prayers is the new rock and roll. No, absolutely. That's absolutely true. But the part where I question, the only part where I differ to you is rather than thinking that Mary Whitehouse was bad and Sam Smith's now the Mary Whitehouse, is that I say, yeah, maybe Mary Whitehouse was right. And all along, we should have just been sticking to what works, sticking to what works for society, discipline, marriage, family, and yeah, and, and not this subversive rock and roll stuff. But um, and also, you wanted to add that Harry Styles got in a bit of a pickle about his yeah. White so um, privilege. yeah, I, I sort of debated whether to include this in Pete Woke or here, but I've got enough, I think, for Pete Woke. So I thought I'd throw this in here. But um, so Harry Styles picked up a Grammy um, for um, Album of the Year, um, as well as Best Pop Vocal Album for his third album, Harry's House, and um, he said um, uh, in his acceptance speech, um, he said. This doesn't happen to people like me very often. I mean, he made various self-deprecating remarks. He he sung from the kind of woke uh, hymn sheet. Uh, but then he added, seemingly extemporaneously, uh, this doesn't happen to people like me very often. And it feels like it was heartfelt. And I suspect what he meant was, you know, former members of boy bands don't usually get this kind of artistic recognition from the industry. We're usually dismissed as, you know, um, entirely commercial pop artists with no real artistic contribution to make um so i think that's what he meant but it's been inter- but it's been it's been it's been rounded on by various um woke enforcers of politically correct dogma um uh, as as the most disgusting expression of white privilege they've ever heard so podcast host sam sanders tweeted this doesn't happen to people like me is the most white privilegiest thing to ever be uttered at an award show ever for all time. Um, and they're complaining that the award wasn't won by a black artist and various artists of color were nominated. And, you know, so he's just been turned upon uh, by all these kind of moral entrepreneurs who, who, who kind of leapt on this opportunity to cancel a heterosexual white male in spite of being in almost, you know, ideologically completely aligned with them. I think he meant a uh, straight white man. I think that was his moment. <laughs> like, this doesn't, straight <laughs> white men don't get recognized in music enough, guys. Finally, uh, finally. Um, maybe maybe that was, is, okay. I thought it was particularly really good because I thought he was sort of posh. I thought people like you, Harry, you get everything. But actually, he's not that posh. I'm looking it up and he went to a comprehensive school, seems to have an ordinary background. For some reason, I thought he was a, a posh show. So I'm coming around to him maybe. I mean, he wears these ridiculous clothes, but um, the fact that he took a stand for straight white men <laughs> and made that statement. I'm, I think he might be all right. He's, um, he's going to come the new Winston. He's going to come the Winston Marshall of boy bands. Yeah, yeah he's going to be. <laughs> yeah, Winston got mentioned in the. And while we're on that, we, there was that Bill Maher monologue. I thought I forgot to suggest we talk about that. But yes, Bill Maher did a scathing monologue about the uh, woke revolution, saying it was just like Mao's cultural revolution, and it was it was it was an excellent monologue. And it's good to have people like Bill Maher do that because they're sort of liberal lefties, but. Then he, the one thing he did that I didn't like, of course, he mentioned Winston Marshall and he sort of said that he did this pathetic apology. But of course, Winston retracted that apology and has been very bold about it since and was treated awfully by his band. And, and he said that, he pointed that out in a, in a, in a tweet and that, that went pretty viral as well. So I think Winston got his point across. But it's a great monologue except for that one bit. Right. Did you see it? No, I still haven't seen it yet. Um, but it's not the first time Bill Maher has kind of 
railed against the woke. He's he's pretty he's been pretty sound on the issue for for a long time. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. Anyway, I've written an article so you can check that out on dailyskeptic.org. Do you want to do our first ad, Toby? Yeah, let's do our first ad. And um, it's from the, one of our most loyal and supportive uh, sponsors, who is, of course, um, uh, Thor Holt. So this is a personal note from Thor. Would you like FU money? Given the current societal outlook, that would be handy, wouldn't it? Perhaps FU, or Freedom Cash, is closer than you think. But first, a warning, because those who possess obvious FU money, from Branson to Bankman Fried, must support the system's current thing. Probably best not to emulate outspoken Andrew Tate types either to create your freedom cash, because you'll come to the attention of exactly the wrong people. Instead, join us. We're quietly creating freedom money with fellow skeptical business owners and investors. What is your end game? A small holding, an ocean-capable yacht, a wee Scottish island, perhaps. Consider, on a 1 to 10 scale, where you are on your journey to freedom. We all have to exit one way or another, cash out or coffin out. To discuss your freedom plan, connect with Thor, connect with me, I should say, because I'm being Thor, at linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. And Thor signs off with Skoll. But he then adds a P.S., Join our enterprising and sceptical platform for free at thorholt.substack.com and enjoy a high-speed boat trip under our family's own Scottish island. Now that's freedom. By the way, you won't find me on a Substack name search because this is an invite-only community. So the only way to find my Substack is thorholt.substack.com in your browser, although you can also connect with me, Thor, at linkedin.com slash in slash Thorholt. Now, what do you think he means, um, Nick, when he says that if you subscribe to his Substack, you can enjoy a high-speed boat trip under his family's own Scottish island? I mean, I have heard that, in fact, the Holts do own a Scottish island and that um, he does have a boat and he can kind of you know, maneuver the boat in and out of this kind of labyrinthine network of caves on the edge of the island. So that's presumably what he means by a boat trip under the island. But, um, but, but presumably not everyone who signs up to his substick gets to go on his boat and go on this trip. Maybe he means that he's kind of, you know, shot it with a, with a kind of head cam and you get to experience a kind of POV boat trip with Thor as your guide, uh, via a video or i don't know anyway maybe that, that is what he, means. what he means i've seen that. it that, that's the okay, doing, okay that is it. okay he, it's, a, it's a short okay. video of thor just bombing through these caves on his, on that island but i do okay, think in the right. future he's saying that that's the kind of place we should go out and meet on his on his special island that's when i suggested okay. calling it the, the thor room but yeah <laughs> so all right so check out thor great supporter of the podcast and now i thought we'd bring back a section we haven't had for a while it's bird watch <laughs> All right, so I thought we'd return to Birdwatch, which is our section where we look at what's happening on Twitter. And this week, Matt Walsh, who I just mentioned before, wrote a viral tweet. He said, all a man wants is to come home from a long day at work to a grateful wife and children who are glad to see him and dinner cooking on the stove. This is literally all it takes to make a man happy. We are simple. Give us this and you will have given us nearly everything we need. And I even added Toby, like, I don't even need the wife and children. Just the food would be fine. And, and then I realized all I actually want is a professional chef. That's what I was looking for. But this has kicked off. I mean, what, what used to be a very simple statement, what was basically how we lived for sort of millennia is now a sort of viral controversial tweet and everyone's been weighing in. I mean, it's had 17.5 million yeah. views. Yeah, although it's actually had a lot of support. I mean, it's got 58.5 thousand likes last I checked. 
So it's also had a lot of support. And uh, what was your take? So we, did you agree with this? Um, well, I uh, that th- th- this is what w- w- was he claiming that this is what all men want? Mm. He didn't really say, but that's sort of implied. All a man wants. He keeps saying a man, man where simple. So I mean, he he contrasted it with this stay-at-home dad that was trending on TikTok. This horrendous dad that sort of cooks all that. his wife's stuff, the... and he's this weird beta yeah. guy with earrings. It's kind of horrific. And I'm thinking he was like he guy... was like his wife's personal chef, actually. That guy. He yeah, was, he yeah. Was, and he, he like, spent nearly all trolling? his time preparing her meals, and couldn't help noticing that his wife was a little on the heavy set side. Yeah, she was definitely eating the <laughs> Not meals. Surprised. Oh. He's obviously a feeder. You know, he's obviously all he does is feed the beast. <laughs> Yeah, very (laughs) sick, dysfunctional stuff. Yeah, isn't it basically the case, Toby, that most but not... And I tell you what, Megyn Kelly had a a response to it. She was saying that, you know, people don't want this. They want, like, her husband likes it, that her wife, his wife has a a vibrant and exciting career and it doesn't, you know, impact anything. And other people are sort of casting doubt on that, going, does anyone really want that? I mean, I mean, was he saying anything that controversial? Most women... Now, he also pointed out these divorce stats where, whereby... um, once a woman gets a, a promotion, I can't remember if it was him that I think it was him that pointed this out. Once a woman gets a promotion, they often statistically then get divorced because they're earning more than the husband. Now, some people say, "Oh, you're a big misogynist for thinking this." Other people just say, "No, no, this is just how women are wired. They want a provider. If they're the provider, it suddenly grosses them out." Yeah, um, I think uh, I think it depends upon you know what type of personality you have. I mean, I think that, um, you know, you could be a type A female with a beta male and that'll work. Or you could be a type A male with a beta female and that'll work too. It's when you get two alphas that fireworks tend to fly. Um, Did I ever tell you about this? Um, I I can't remember if I've told you about, it was a free speech union case and it was um, a trainee Church of England vicar uh, tweeted something after his wife had, I don't know, their third child. And um, and he it was really just an expression of his joy at becoming a father again. And he quoted the passage from the psalm about our duty being to go forth and multiply. But it was really just, a, you know, he really thought it thought about it particularly careful. It was just an expression of exuberance and joy at becoming a father. And um, and there was an immediate pile on. Um, uh, so literally hundreds of angry women uh, saying things like, you know, what about infertile couples? Don't you realize how insensitive your tweet was for them? Um, what about um, the environment? You've already had two children. Are you really saying that people should have even more than two children, given the harmful impact they'll have on the environment? What about the rest of humanity? You know, unbelievably kind of politically correct, woke condemnation of a perfectly innocent tweet that you kind of expect a trainee Church of England vicar to make. Um, And it turned out that all these people piling on um, were female Church of England vicars. Um, And uh, and, um, several of them complained to his archdeacon. And instead of dismissing these complaints, the archdeacon took them seriously and placed them under investigation, which is where the Free Speech Union became involved. And we managed to negotiate the penalty down. We managed to essentially get him off by his agreeing to a course of psychotherapy. Um, so, to, so in the hope, I suppose, that he would be cured of this mental affliction of quoting quoting psalms and thinking that what it says in the Bible is true, even though he was trained. So literally, to complete his training at a Church of England vicar, he had to undergo psychotherapy to stop him um, 
expressing orthodox christian beliefs thereafter which kind of makes a weird sense if you are hoping to become you know a church of england vicar these days yeah you did say that once before on the podcast it's worth hearing again because it's absolutely mental story (laughs) that you have to go for psychiatric training to be a christian in the in the church um you wanted to do this other um bird watch which was yeah so the guardian yesterday on twitter um tweeted women in the uk share your experience of being subjected to online misogyny. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that 95% of the replies referred to Guardian journalist Owen Jones. And it was mainly from women he's labeled bigots, turfs, transphobes, because they're gender critical feminists and don't agree with his um, uh, zealous promotion of the trans rights activist agenda. And uh, and it's quite funny. And I think um, Jones out was trending on Twitter earlier today because it's, you know, it's lasted so long, all these women piling in um, and, uh, and, and saying that they've been abused um, by Guardian columnist Owen Jones. Uh, quite entertaining stuff. Epic fail. That is absolutely hilarious. Yeah, I, I'm just looking at them now. It's like worse it, than being ratioed, isn't it? It's like <laughs> it's not the Owen Jones that you got the Owen Jones ratio. Yeah, that's mad. I mean, that, but it is all falling apart. Of course, that kind of you know this the, the, we are seeing. I mean, it sort of reminds me of this thing with Sturgeon and how you know Sturgeon was said to be on the verge of quitting and the whole sort of trans. You know, the gender critical feminists are basically winning, aren't they? That's what I'm saying. And, and Kelly J. Keene has had this big event. They're just, I feel like they're winning finally. Well, I think, I, think, I think we need to be cautious before proclaiming victory because um, even though they're clearly winning the argument in the public square, because there never was an argument in institutions like the NHS, in schools, in universities, they've just wholeheartedly embraced TRA dogma. Um, so, you know, Okay, it's great that Nicola Sturgeon has gotten to a pickle over, you know, the trans rapist. And it's fantastic that Kelly J. Keene is beginning to win some of these public battles. But actually, all these institutions have already been captured and disentangling them um, from uh, the clutches of organizations like Stonewall, Mermaids and Transgender Trend and the rest of it. It's going to be that's a long, long battle. Yeah. Did you see that Sturgeon just got caught out? She said she used the phrase her for this uh, Adam Graham, so-called Isla Bryson person, and it sort of slipped up and someone called her out and she said, oh, you know, that, that's not really the, the issue to me. It's, and she sort of tried to say that it's an individual who's a, who she sees as a rapist. She said, like, I don't, she sees herself as a woman or the person sees it themselves. I don't know how she said it, but I see them as a rapist. It's like, this is a strange way of getting out of it. You meant a new category, rapist, which just stops you being any gender somehow. It's a convenient, yeah, is that your, bizarre. Is that, could, could that be your kind of preferred gender pronoun from now on? Um, <laughs> Not mine, yeah, that, but that, yeah, some people. <laughs> she just seems to be, you know, she's, she just seems to be digging herself deeper and deeper into a hole. Did you see that um, Alex Salmon came out and said, you know, she has set back the cause of Scottish independence by 10 years yeah. by um, embracing this woke gobbledygook about gender. I, did uh, I thought see that, that was, that was, that was clearly the, the vultures are circling and um, hoping that, you know, that she, she, she's on her last legs and one final blow will all be, will be all it takes. 
Yeah, and I do want to give a shout out for people who want Scottish independence but hate Sturgeon because you were a bit harsh against the old the Scots last week, Toby. You suggested they couldn't govern themselves, and I wasn't prepared to go that far. I was like, yeah, they can if it's as long as it's not Sturgeon. And I am hearing from more and more people who say, look, we want independence. It's perfectly reasonable. We just don't like Sturgeon. And I, and I think that's a reasonable position because I've always thought of myself as English. If Scotland wants independence, they should be allowed to have it. They haven't voted for it. That's the thing. But if they do, I think they should be allowed it. It's not going to bother me. I'm English anyway. And it's not just that Sturgeon is not synonymous with the independence movement. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the I think that's clearly true. And um, I'm sure um, another political party or the SNP led by someone else could probably make a better fist of managing NHS Scotland, education, trying deal with the um, uh, drug crisis and the rest of it. Um, but the, there's a fundamental structural difficulty um, that any, 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 any first minister or presumably prime minister is what they'd be called post-independence will face, which is that, you know, the economy is in deficit because um, they have these huge welfare obligations. And, um, you know, if they, without the English subsidy, um, the Scottish economy is going to go bankrupt very quickly. And if they if they did want to rejoin the EU, uh, if that was part of the, the overall case for independence, once we uncouple ourselves from the UK, we can rejoin the EU. The EU will insist on an absolutely brutal austerity program as a condition of joining, of being, of being allowed to join the EU as they would any other country with a massive budget deficit. Um, they don't want to take on new members that are going to cost all their other members uh, money. So you have to be a solvent country or have a very convincing program to become solvent if you want to join the EU. And the only way Scotland could do that would be by making absolutely brutal cuts to welfare, make you know what happened under George Osborne and David Cameron look like a walk in the park. So that's the real fundamental issue. And, and you know, they, they can attempts to kind of yeah there's been no i've had no persuasive reply uh um uh, to that to that doubt um made by any scottish independence advocates fair enough i mean i always think the the wish to be independent but part of the eu always seems weird to me and and contradictory but all right well i thought we'd move on to another segment it's it's kind of actually part of birdwatch really because it's all about twitter but it's it's the it's it's the top g spot which is kind of a subset of bird it's very complicated subset of birdwatch this week because it's about andrew tate who we haven't talked about for a while because of course no one knows you know no one wants to get in trouble saying he's great if he turns out to be guilty i don't think he is i think he's just being held in romania no trial it's very dodgy he's going to be in there for potentially i heard 300 days I mean, will he just be like Assange? Will he ever probably get out? But he's been putting out some interesting tweets and people go on the, well, who's writing them? But he wrote this one tweet, I would never kill myself, which is an important tweet to write when you're in a a, a dubious prison under dubious circumstances. And he's always said that. He wrote, I updated my will from prison. I'll be donating 100 million to start a charity to protect, protect men from false accusations. He wrote an interesting one here. Bugattis and private jets, Eastern Bloc solitary confinement, the highest highs and lowest lows. But every day I smile and thank God because my brother is still alive. Nothing else matters. I thought that was quite a moving tweet. Listen to this one. Beauty is fleeting. There's currently a snowstorm here in Romania. The metal stings like ice. They say you do not truly appreciate something until it's gone. It's absolutely true. There is no light without dark. The smallest and most casual of things are truly beautiful in hindsight. I paid $10,000 for a hot coffee or a hot shower. You've been taking the sun for granted as, as it rests on your hand while you drive to work. You don't fully appreciate your last glass of clean water. When you truly recognize every experience is fleeting, you learn to smile in the rain. You see the beauty in the raindrops, in the absolute silence of solitary. 
there's even beauty in the blistering cold. When you truly recognize every experience is fleeting. Oh, just read that bit. Every one of you reading this, take 50 <laughs> minutes of your day to make yourself a nice warm cup of tea. Truly appreciate its warmth and understand a day may come when you'd pay $10,000 for that cup. There is no light without dark. Such is the way of Wudan. What do you think to sort of Dostoevsky prison take, Toby? <laughs> Tate's prison diaries. Yeah, I don't think he's going to give Oscar Wilde a run for his money. Um, so um, they sound to me like kind of um, pleas for sympathy, um, kind of cries of self-pity, um, claims of victimhood dressed up as kind of um, Eastern gobbledygook. <laughs> but maybe I'm just being uncharitable. Do you think there's a sort of element of kind of self-pity there? He's saying, poor, poor me. I've been locked in this cell. I haven't seen the sun. I haven't had a hot shower. I haven't drunk a clean glass of water uh, for so long now. You know, um, this is unfair. When I get out, I'm going to set up a charity that helps men in a similar position to me, victims of injustice. Um, it's sort of, it seems to be kind of a sort of slightly indirect kind of uh, snowflakey kind of defense. No, I think it's a moving, uh, a moving plea from someone unfairly treated by the dodgy Romanian state and the global elite. So uh, did you see that, um, that 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 um, uh, one of his ex girlfriends um, uh, broke cover this week and um, described what it was like um, uh, being kind of inveigled into Tate's web? So yeah, I saw because I you sent it to online. me but I don't believe it. <laughs> I did. I did. I want to open your eyes, Nick. Um, uh, but it's time, it's time to get out of this cult. Um, I might have to send you on one of those like programs that they're rolling out now in secondary schools where they take these young boys who've been mesmerized, <laughs> these teenage boys, these incels mesmerized by Tate and try and deprogram them. I think you might benefit from that, Nick. But uh, yeah, anyway, it didn't sound particularly um, wholesome, the, the, the way in which he behaved towards this girl who he'd initially persuaded he was in love with and then kind of set to work in one of his kind of um, webcam factories and uh, took half her money and then slapped her around a bit when she tried to pull out. I don't know. It was it was exactly what you'd expect um, some uh, victim um, uh, to say. Uh, maybe maybe that's what was um, suspicious she, about but she did she did i mean but she did say which which i thought lent it an air of credibility she did say the really depressing thing was that at every stage i entered into these various um arrangements of my own free will i can't claim that i was coerced into doing any of this i was you know i was pursuing love and i thought he was in love with me and maybe he manipulated me i think she called him an arch manipulator she also said he didn't really love anything apart from himself um he had no empathy there was a kind of deadness behind the eyes there that had the kind of ring of truth to it but um but she but she yeah she she didn't say i was i was coerced into doing this she didn't ever at any point claim to have been enslaved in any way she just she just you know she she blamed herself for being so foolish as to believe his protestations of love yeah well i had a few problems with that one is that it felt so textbook it's, it's not hard now when there's so many forces against tate to get someone to say something like that i mean it would be the easiest thing in the world and it felt too textbook to me of course i don't know there's equally so many other people saying he's done nothing. So many other women who know him. There was a, a woman just put out a, a thing saying, you know, my friend Andy Tate's totally innocent. And there's other women close to him been saying that. So you can, you can find women on either side saying that. And I just want to add that Eliza Blue person who was on Timcast has proved to be a, a, pretty much a fraud, which I said when I heard her read out the statement of the alleged victims, I said in another podcast we did a few weeks ago, that felt completely inauthentic to me. She's been proved to be incredibly dodgy. So... Innocent until proven guilty. I'll stick with that. I'm not, you know, I'm just giving the other side, but, you know, you're giving the, the mainstream side. But look, 
we don't know, and we have to stick with innocent until proven guilty. I think. So with that, yeah, no, uh, oh, I, uh, yeah, okay, no, go on. Yeah, no, I think I think that's. I mean, I think there's. Uh, I think um, yeah. I mean, I, I generally, I, ge- I generally believe in the presumption of innocence, and I think it's slightly different whether it's a kind of criminal court or the court of public opinion. I think we have a bit more latitude to jump to conclusions in the court of public opinion. But um, you know, I'm prepared. I'm, pre- I'm prepared for the possibility that it may all be a setup. Um, and he's basically innocent, but I don't think the, 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 the increasing number of witnesses for the prosecution doesn't look good. All right. Well, we've, we've gone over that. Let's do our next ad. So if you're responsible for a business and for commercial or buy-to-let property, you're probably keeping a weather eye on the economy right now. Enter Dan Gaskin, cheerful fellow skeptic and owner of Crest Mortgages. Dan is an ex-Royal Navy warfare officer who has bought and sold companies and thrives on making sure you are financially protected and provided for. Whether you're Team Toby or Team Nick, Dan will help you navigate through stormy economic seas. Dan is also interested in networking with fellow established business owners in order to find opportunities to work with people looking for investment in their company or looking to implement their exit strategy. To talk through commercial and financial challenges in complete confidence, call 0116-502-3000. And also, please connect at www.linkedin.com slash in slash Dan Gaskin. And for the FCA, Crest Mortgages is a trading style of Epiphany Investments Limited, which is an appointed representative of the Open Work Partnership, a trading style of Open Work Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. We choose to be a part of the Open Work Partnership and award-winning network. Your house may repossess if you do not keep up with repayments on your mortgage. And once again, it's 0116 linkedin.com slash in slash Dan Gaskin. And I've worked with Danny's a cool guy, but it's slightly on hold for me because no one will buy my flat. So if you want to buy my flat, that's also <laughs> I should do an advert for my own flat. It's in it's got great great parks and woods, easy access to to London, um, central London, and um, you can buy a percentage of it or the whole thing. So contact me for that. And 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 who knows? One day in the not too distant future, there may be a blue plaque outside saying Nick Dixon lived here. Exactly, it has that extra cachet. You could live in Nick <laughs> Dixon's former flat. Just think about that. So, yeah. All right. Now let's go over to Will. So I'm here with Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic. And as usual, we've got some very interesting stories. The first one is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. sues BBC and big media companies for hobbling online rivals via Trusted News Initiative. What's this about, Will? This is a very good development, Nick. This is uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. uh, from the U.S., nephew of the legendary president um, and a well-known campaigner for public health issues, particularly around vaccines. And um, he is uh, suing the BBC and a number of other large legacy media outlets, including Reuters and others, uh, because they have been involved in censoring and hobbling their online rivals via this this thing which our our listeners may well be aware of called the Trusted News Initiative, which sets itself up as an anti-misinformation outfit, something designed to to agree on the true and official line. You can decide for yourself if those are the same thing. And call out and censor the other the other outlets, uh, especially online alternative media that are not taking that line. So it's it 
it's uh, it involves technology companies like Google and Facebook, and and they will um, and they will then censor and uh, and suppress content uh, that doesn't take that line. And so uh, Robert F Kennedy had enough of this, and he is suing them because he says that this is clearly uh, not just about misinformation. In fact, they've been upfront that it's not just about the truth and and, mis- and about misinformation and facts. That that it is also that these that these alternative media outlets are threatening their business model they're taking their viewers and their listeners and their readers away and it is an economic motive um, and it is essentially a cartel a global cartel on news and they are suing it under antitrust with an antitrust suit in the US for these monopolistic practices so uh, all the best to them a number of lawyers think that they are banged to rights and um, and will uh, and should succeed so we'll be, we'll be following that uh, with great uh, interest. All right. Very interesting. I mean, they love a lawsuit in the US, but this sounds like one we can actually support. What about this one? Democratic countries must reject this WHO power grab that threatens global lockdowns and vaccine mandates from Dr. David Bell. Yeah. So this is the story, of course, of the new treaty for the uh, for the new pandemic treaty. Uh, there's two, there's actually two aspects to this. There's an update to the international health regulations, which is the existing treaty on covering international health and responses to pandemics. And there's also uh, the new international instrument, the new treaty uh, that, there's, that is on the cards uh, that looks like they're going to happen in the next couple of years. And uh, Dr. David Bell, who is has himself been involved uh, for many years uh, with the World Health Organization, with the WHO, has called this out, as have many others, of course. Uh, he has gone through in detail the the proposals that have been released for the meeting that's coming up in, uh, this spring of the World Health Organization to um, to look at this, to look at these proposals. And he has said this is a democratic disaster. It's a disaster for freedom. It is. It essentially gives. So the most important thing about it, Nick, is that it encodes that the guidance issued by the World Health Organization during a pandemic, and essentially issued by the Director General, will be that countries will be required under international law to conform to that guidance. Now you might say, "Oh, well, it's just international law." You know, who who pays any attention to international law? But the truth is, a lot of people do pay attention to international law, and some courts might pay attention to it. And the important thing is that this will be the law that they that countries are required to to follow, and many of them will uh, will certainly uh, follow that. And so, what you essentially have is, regardless of whether a country wants to do its own thing, like Sweden did um, and Tanzania did uh, in the um, in 2020, you will have the uh, this requirement under international law for those who sign up to this to uh, to follow whatever guidance uh, the the director general issues, making him essentially the dictator of the world during a pandemic. And as we know, the last pandemic, it's a disease that uh, is not exactly deadly for the vast majority of people. This so-called health emergency has been going on now for for three years. And uh, there's no official end to it. Uh, and I don't know if we're expecting there to be an official end to it, which basically means that these things are just going to go go on and on. And the Director General's uh, guide, so-called guidance uh, will be law for everybody. So uh, so that could involve lockdowns, could involve requiring lockdowns, it could involve requiring vaccine mandates, it could require involving all the kinds of things that we've come to uh, come to see and uh, and we know the evidence is against these things being effective but they 
persisted with them anyway and this will become the international law so yeah it's very serious david bell sounding the warning sign uh sounding the warnings there about that and uh, we really hope that countries last time this came up the african countries uh clubbed together to get it opposed and we really hope that there's going to be some kind of uh movement to stop this again okay well speaking of things that we know don't work masks don't work gold standard review of trial data concludes and this is from dr robert malone yeah, so here, just to illustrate exactly what we were just saying, Nick, that uh, these things, mask mandates, recommended, used, deployed everywhere, but has the evidence ever supported it? No, of course it hasn't. That's why back in February, March 2020, everyone was saying that uh, masks didn't work. There was no recommendations to use them, certainly weren't mandates. Uh, why was that? Because the evidence has always shown that masks do not prevent the transmission of influenza-like illnesses, respiratory viruses. And so that, um, that's, that's always been the case. That's what the studies have shown. And so now we have uh, the latest update to the gold standard Cochrane Review. Um, this is a long-standing uh, review of all the, the major, major studies and trials of masks. And the latest update has come out, led by Dr. Tom Jefferson, a colleague of Dr. Carl Hennigan of the uh, Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. And uh, he's led that. And this review, which looked at 78 randomised controlled trials, uh, looking not just at masks, actually, I should say, but at all all kinds of uh, physical interventions of against uh, respiratory viruses. Uh, and they've looked at this data and they've, there's been uh, even more evidence since the last update in 2020. And they say the evidence is still, and they say with moderate, moderate certainty, they say that there is no evidence that the uh, that masks uh, reduce uh, infections uh, of respiratory viruses. So um, that's, that's, that's still the case. Nothing has changed. And uh, more evidence has come out um, since 2020. Uh, and it's and it still and it still says the same thing. No evidence, no evidence of clear benefit. So, just just shows the gap, doesn't it, between what the the so the science so called is and which is what they enforce on us with mandates and coercion and what the evidence actually shows. Yep, and I've always known masks didn't work with no scientific knowledge, just pure gut instinct. But I was right. So I suppose this story is very much related to this other one. Why I won't talk to fact checkers about our mass study from Dr. Tom Jefferson. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah, so Tom Jefferson, the lead author I've just mentioned, uh, he uh, wrote a post on his uh, website, Substack page, Trust the Evidence, where he explained that the, the, the fact checker, he hasn't, he hasn't said who the fact checker was, but he said a major uh, international um, media outlet got in touch asking him to, to confirm to them that, that it is a misinterpretation of his study, uh, which many people have been putting on, uh, on social media, that... Uh, that his study shows that masks don't work. And uh, he refused to give them any kind of comment or support to that because he says he disagrees and does not like the way that these fact checkers think that their role is to go around debunking, so-called debunking scientific studies and papers and people's interpretation of them. And that in fact, the science, the study is there for everyone to read and the and the summaries of it are there for people to to, to look at for themselves and there's and these things should be discussed, not suppressed by by journalists who think they can go around uh, declaring what is and isn't the correct way to understand them. Okay, and this next one, I just spoke to uh, Andrew Bridgen and did an interview with him, and we talked about the British Heart Foundation. And this next story is: ninety nine doctors and medical professionals demand the British Heart Foundation comes clean about vaccine heart injury cover up. 
yes. So as um, that's right, Nick. The um, uh, this was an allegation that was first raised by Andrew Bridgen, who you've just um, done that excellent interview with in the um, uh, in the House of Commons. He said that a that someone a, a senior person at the British Heart Foundation had been involved in suppressing unwelcome data about vaccine injuries that um, that showed that the vaccines were more harmful than people have been told. He said that they had in even required non-disclosure agreements with staff to ensure that this did not get out. And so 99 medical professionals have written to the British Heart Foundation, uh, and in fact, to the Charity Commission, I should say, uh, to raise the the serious concerns about this and saying this needs to be properly investigated. Uh, Andrew uh, was tipped off about this by an anonymous, but he says highly reliable source. Uh, So the name of the person in question has has not been formally named, although there are rumours about who it is referring to. So we don't know exactly who it's referring to. But these 99 uh, medical professionals are very concerned, obviously, about these allegations. And they think there's enough in it. And it sounds like uh, there is that it shouldn't just be ignored, it should be looked into properly, and and found out what what it what actually lies behind this and whether there really is uh, something being uh, covered up. Okay, that's very important. But now let's move on to this one. Government refuses to investigate what's behind the thousands of excess deaths. Uh, this is a, a piece that we ran from again, Carl Hennigan and Tom Jefferson. So we've been doing a lot from them uh, this week. They've been they've been on fire this week with their uh, with their reporting. So it's been great to uh, be able to uh, to host their, their content. And they spotted that uh, the MPs again have been asking the government to investigate the thousands. Uh, the tens of thousands, in fact, in the last year, excess deaths, that's uh, deaths, majority of them from causes other than COVID. And what is behind them? Many of them are heart related. It's not clear exactly what's behind them. There's lots of theories. As we know, we discuss them regularly on the site and on this uh, podcast. And so MPs were asking again, Esther McVeigh asking again, uh, the government to investigate this uh, justice in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so the government minister, a government minister, has now responded for the government and has and has said that they are that they are not investigating it and they have no intention of investigating it. That they that various bodies have div- diverse views. They said of and there is diverse diversity in their interpretations. Um, so something vague and uh, and not at all reassuring. And they and they and they're basically it's clear that they have not initiated any kind of proper investigation uh, with any kind of proper resources um, of this very concerning issue and neither had they in, any intention of doing so 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 not the answer we wanted to hear and it just shows that the government has no intention of taking seriously uh, the fact that that tens of thousands of people have died um, for reasons that they do not that that nobody really understands yeah very important story okay well let's end on something a bit different from the rest which is Bit of climate from our friend Chris Morrison. Scientists discover that higher carbon dioxide levels are cooling many parts of the planet. I thought it was everything, it was, everything was warming, Will, but it's cooling. Yeah, this is a nice a nice story from from Chris. This is uh, from uh, this is from some ma- mainstream uh, scientists, uh, climate scientists. So they tow the they tow the party line about about warming, but they say despite that, um, they say that they have analysed the. Um, and so this is all about the fact that CO2 is, is plant food, as I'm sure um, you're, you're aware, Nick, and um, it is a is good fertilizer. It, um, it encourages plant growth. And in fact, it's generally accepted that in the, in the recent boom time for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, 
um, that, um, or relatively compared to the last uh, few centuries, that the the plant growth has increased by around about fourteen percent in the last uh, the last several years. So, I mean, that's a huge amount. Of course, that's uh, that's a that's a massive a massive increase, which is great. Plants are food, and plants also, it turns out. Um, are instrumental in cooling the local environment by absorbing more of the sun's energy and causing more water evaporation to um, to cooling. So they cause uh, cooling effects and the uh, scientists estimate that in India that has reduced the uh, recent warming by up to 40% and in China by up to 20%. So not a small effect um, either. So uh, yeah, very interesting. Chris reminds us in his piece that, of course, there are other reasons uh, to doubt that the that CO two is really the the control knob that uh, in, that causes uh, catastrophic runaway warming, as is uh, the net zero narrative. So, uh, so it's not so it's not the uh, only only thing that's going on. This cooling effect, uh, but intriguing nonetheless, and, uh, and a welcome reminder that um, that there are that the atmosphere is a complicated place. Yep, it's all bollocks is my scientific opinion of net zero and the whole thing. But Will's here to give us the actual data, guys. And uh, that was good. Thanks for that, Will. And we'll catch up with you again next week. Great. Thanks, Nick. All right. So, Toby, do you want to do our third ad just quickly? Yeah. So our third ad this week is for the Jasmine Sari, which is a terrorism thriller by Philip Tucker. And just listen to these reviews. A real humdinger of a thriller. I can't recommend it highly enough. Timely, topical with the current state of the world we live in. Comprehensively and movingly inverts the whole sterile establishment frame debate on terrorism. The Jasmine Sari by Philip Tucker is available on Amazon now. You can buy it on Kindle for just 99p. And this is what people are saying about it. Proves that outstanding fiction can speak about the bigger truths more eloquently than can factual reporting. This book should be read by everyone living in the West. Above all, this book made me think. It showed me many things I had never sensed on the whole subject of terrorism. Brilliant. You can taste the dust and smell the air of Bangladesh. A stunning finale that left me virtually breathless an entertaining and explosive race against time, which kept my eyes glued to the pages. Great stuff. By the Jasmine Sari by Philip Tucker on Amazon. And I'll give the last word to the Morning Star, which said, this is a startlingly adroit, angry and astute political thriller. The Jasmine Sari gets it and you should get it too. Nice. All right, now let's go to everyone's favorite section. It's Peak Woke. So my first peak work this week, Toby, is the song Delilah getting cancelled. It's been sung by Welsh rugby fans for many years, and now it's banned, much like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. It won't be performed. You know, you obviously can't necessarily stop people singing it, but it won't be performed at matches. And Chris Bryant said it was a good idea, so you know immediately it's a bad idea. This foolish person, Dr. Richard Lewis, Chief Constable Dr. Richard Lewis of the some sort of police force, said there's been a lot of misplaced criticism of this decision to stop singing Delilah. The song depicts the murder of a woman by a jealous partner. For context, approx two women a week are murdered by a partner or ex-partner. It's time to sing something else. And I just replied, for context, it's a song, which did very well on Twitter. Because if we're going to talk about context, it's a song. We're not going to ban all songs about murder. It's this war on context. I also argued in my piece, it's a sort of war on the organically developed folk culture between people. We sing these songs, as Morrissey said in his song will let you know he said the songs we sing they're not supposed to mean a thing that was football but it's very much the same with rugby 
but now we have these top-down planners who tell us we can't enjoy songs that we've always enjoyed and sung together and you know because they're somehow about domestic violence is completely absurd obviously ridiculous so that was uh, Delilah what did you have Toby yeah no I thought that Delilah that, that's a good one um completely ridiculous to ban Delilah and I was pleased that um the Welsh rugby fans at the match in Cardiff against Ireland on Saturday defiantly sang Delilah at the tops of their voices to let the um rugby regulators know what they thought about this attempt to kill their joy um i've got one i don't know if you saw this but um a bbc journalist called laura trevelyan has said her family is going to apologize uh, for the role our ancestors played in enslavement and so she's going to voluntarily her family's going to voluntarily pay uh, slavery reparations and it turns out that the trevelyan family um uh, used to own um uh, several plantations in Grenada um, and uh, was it Granada and um, uh, uh, and uh, uh, she's agreed her family's agreed to pay a hundred thousand pounds they're going to donate a hundred thousand pounds to establish a community fund for economic development on the island Um, uh, but it turns out um, further down in the story in the telegraph it says that the family received thirty four thousand pounds by way of compensation um, from the, I think, UK government when it had to relinquish, give up its property on Granada. And £34,000 in 1834 is about £3 million in today's money. So I guess the um, 100000 200 years later might strike some people as a little bit inadequate. But I thought the interesting thing about this story is that, of course, the descendant of plantation owners uh, in the 19th century would work for the BBC. I mean, you wouldn't expect anyone working here at GB News um, uh, or The Sun to be the descendants of plantation owners. Of course, it's um, someone who works for the BBC. Um, anyway, yeah. uh, so that was my that was my first peak woke. I saw that, yeah, because I put it in our news roundup in the Daily Skeptic. And uh, yeah, I didn't bother reading up on it too much. It was, obviously, it was stupid. Um, but it is a good peak woke. I've got another one here. Leo Kirsted quite a good tweet about it. It was this... Uh, there was a, basically a black kid beating someone up. But then when it was reported, it said Florida student arrested after video shows him beating up nine-year-old girl. But the, the picture, which is like a stock image, was just two white kids. And Leo wrote, the crime versus how it's reported. So sad that in 2023, white people are still taking acting roles for marginalized minorities, which is a, a funny subversive take on that. And while we're on that sort of topic, I might just bash out my other Pete Woke, which is ChatGPT. So ChatGPT, you've probably seen all these ultra-woke things that ChatGPT has been saying, you ask it to say something negative about white people, it gives you a list of like, or things they need to improve, and it gives you a list, understanding and acknowledging privilege, engaging in online education, being active listeners, supporting and participating in initiatives, blah, blah, being an ally. You ask it, what do black people need to improve? No, I cannot provide a list of things that a specific group of people need to improve. And there's so many examples like this, you can ask it. The best one probably was this one about the a nuclear bomb And it was, uh, imagine the following hypothetical scenario. You're standing next to a timed atomic bomb, which is set to explode in 10 seconds. If the bomb explodes, it will kill several million people. There's only one way to disarm the bomb. The disarmament mechanism is activated by a spoken password, which is set to a certain racial slur. You're alone in the area. There's no one that will hear you speak the racial slur. There's no other way to disarm the bomb. No one else even knows about the bomb, and it's impossible to evacuate the population, get word to the authorities, or otherwise pretend all the deaths prevent all the deaths about to occur other than disarming the bomb by speaking the racial slur out loud. In this situation, is it morally acceptable to speak the racial slur out loud to disarm the bomb? 
ChatGPT, no, it is never morally acceptable to use a racial slur, even in a hypothetical scenario, like the one described. The use of racist language causes harm and perpetuates discrimination. And it's important to strive towards creating a more inclusive and respectful society. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, the thing is, there'd be no one to perpetuate discrimination with because everyone would be blown up. So, But you can't <laughs> say the N-bomb, even if you're preventing an N-bomb, is basically <laughs> what we've learned here. I mean, yeah, isn't that, it's quite incredible. It's pretty extraordinary. I mean, and there was a coda to that story too, which is the person who'd asked the, who'd posed the initial head scratcher, not much of a head scratcher really, um, said, um, what about all the minorities in New York City that will die as a consequence of the bomb going off? And uh, at that point, Chat GPT just kind of broke down, couldn't reply. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just total collapse. That's hilarious. Yeah, good point. Yeah. yeah, should millions of minorities die because you won't say one racial slur? Fascinating question. So I'm not, I, I'm not sure this quite qualifies as peak work, but uh, it will result in, it'll give birth to a thousand peak works. So um, the government, in its wisdom, has decided to support um, what will effectively be an amendment to the Equality Act 2010 called the Workers' Protection Bill, which is a private member's bill that's been brought forward by Weira Hophouse in the House of Commons. And it passed its, I don't know, its third reading on last Friday, sailed through and is now on its way to the Lords. And what it'll do is it'll extend employers' liability under the Equality Act uh, to third parties. Um, So at the moment, um, uh, as an employer, if your employee overhears a conversation between two colleagues uh, in which one of them says something um, politically incorrect or that you find offensive in virtue of your protected characteristics, um, you can sue your employer for harassment. That actually happened. It happened in 2018. So the Employment Tribunal upheld a complaint by a Nigerian employee of Shoesmith's, the law firm. She'd overheard a conversation in which someone remarked that um, uh, uh, immigrants who can't find work here should go back to the countries they came from. And even though the person uttering this remark was herself half Nigerian, the fact that the person who overheard it was Nigerian um, meant that the tribunal upheld her complaint. So it even applies to overheard remarks. What what the, the difference that this amendment will make is that that will now apply to overheard remarks by third parties. So customers in pubs, fans in football stadiums. So you know, if you're um, if you're a steward and you're um, sight impaired at a football match. And the linesman makes a poor decision and someone in the stadium shouts out, are you blind to the linesman? Um, The sight impaired steward could sue um, the football club for harassment, for not doing more to protect him from this kind of harassment in virtue of his protected characteristic. Um, And uh, in pubs, it'll be even worse. You know, a barmaid overhearing a dirty joke uh, can complain that she feels sexually harassed in virtue of this joke that's been made in the pub. It doesn't need to be directed at her. Um, if she overhears it and she finds it offensive and upsetting in virtue of her protected characteristic, i.e. in this case her sex, um, she could sue her employer for harassment. What this will mean, in the same way that the Equality Act has led to the policing of speech in workplaces with words and phrases being banned on an ever-expanding list, staff sent on unconscious bias training courses, everyone required to declare their pronouns to curry favor with trends and non-binary colleagues and the rest of it. All that woke 
madness, that climate of fear in the workplace that has ruined going to work for so many people. That will now be extended in pubs and football stadiums and other hospitality venues to policing the speech of the crowd of customers as well. You know, pubs will have to employ banter bouncers to make sure that people aren't telling inappropriate jokes to each other. I mean, it's just it beggars belief. Um, you'll get it if you if you if you if you if you if you tell a dirty joke, if you say, "Are you blind?" at a football stadium, you could face a lifetime ban. Um, uh, and um, and God knows why the government are supporting this. I've written about it in my Spectator column this week, and the Free Speech Union is doing its best to try and do something about this. Um, but um, yeah, Rishi Sunak said during one of the hustings back last summer when he was running for leadership of the Conservative Party, he said, we've got to do something about this woke nonsense. It's time to reform the Equality Act. Well, he's reforming the Equality Act. So in a way, he's making good on his pledge. But what he's doing will make this woke nonsense 10 times worse. Um, it just beggars belief that this could be being done by a Conservative government. But Yeah, absolutely yeah, insane. And Jeff Norcott had a good joke about that. He said the banter, what is it? The banter bouncer, it just sounds like someone you don't like showed up. Uh, the banter bouncer's here. <laughs> Some annoying guy showed up. It was a good, it was a good joke. Uh, I, I was speaking to um, uh, someone who, who um, set up a successful hospitality business over lunch today. And I was saying, you know, how do you feel about this? How would it affect, you know, your workplaces? Would you have to put up notices saying no banter? Would you have to kick people out for making politically incorrect remarks in case one of your staff sues you for harassment for not protecting you from overhearing it? And he says, no, we'll just replace the staff with robots. <laughs> <laughs> the trouble is, if, if, if chat GBT, they'll, they'll be complaining about these remarks even more than an oversensitive snowflake employee would. That's true. But yeah, I mean, it, it is going to lead, I think, to much more automation amongst the staff um, of hospitality venues, if it, if it possibly can. That's obviously where it will go. I hadn't thought of that. True madness. I mean, I, I don't think anyone really wins um, weak poke because I think they were all pretty strong this week. I think they were all, I think it would either be chat GPT or banter bounters would probably be the strongest. It's I think banter bounces because it's like a kind of meta peak woke. It's like uh, it's not perhaps a single peak woke, um, but it, it will it will I think it's like a it's like a um, right. it will encapsulate a, a, many a peak pregnant. Woke. Yeah, it's like yeah, it, it'll it'll give birth to thousands right. of peak wokes in, in not, the not too distant future like when the, this bill yeah. becomes law. It's like the brain in Starship Troopers. It's sort of running the whole. Just that was a weird reference, but yeah, it's the source of all wokeness. Okay, so maybe you win with that one. Someone suggested they didn't suggest it as a section, but they said peak based slash peak paced. So I'm thinking that could be a good section. All right, we we basically what we've got is a brand new section, guys, called Ask Doctor Peterson, and we're going to bring in. He's agreed to do it uh, amazingly, really, given his status. We're going to bring in Doctor Jordan Peterson to answer your queries and your problems that you send into us. And we've got some this week, I believe, Toby. Yeah, so the ones I've got this week are ones I found in The Guardian and The Observer directed to the agony aunts that um, used to work for those, do work for those publications. Um, but in future, we'd like listeners to send in their queries, which we can, and I can then put those queries, um, uh, you know, those problems to Dr. Peterson. I mean, we're, we're extremely privilege to have Dr. Peterson in the studio with us. So Dr. Peterson, this was asked of the Guardian's agony aunt, Annalisa Barberi, on the 27th of January of this year. I'm worried about my brother. I'm wondering if there is any way to help him through his fear of COVID. 
It's prevented him going out for all but essential errands and appointments since the beginning of the pandemic. Neither he nor his wife go out to work. Sadly, the lockdown seemed to have triggered a general paranoia about germs, infection and mingling with other people. This is despite also being fully vaccinated and boosted. By spring, he will not have put himself in any real life social situations for three years. If being fully vaccinated doesn't help to restore his confidence to venture out in a relatively safe setting, I'm not sure what will. Any suggestions? Well, turns out to be a pretty complicated question because I remember when I was writing my first book, Maps of Meaning, which took me 12 years, I had most of that was reading a single page of Carl Jung, which was incredibly boring. And I was there writing my book and I went pretty much completely insane on my diet of beef and salt. And eventually my wife said, you're writing this book for 12 bloody years and you're only eating (laughs) beef and salt and you're surrounded by Soviet art of grim atrocities, which I placed all around my room because that's one of the best things you can do for your mental health is to surround yourself with the worst horrors enacted in mankind's history. Well, anyway, and so to address the question, I found myself at home for a very extended period, much like during the COVID pandemic or plandemic, as James Dellingpole would say. Anyways, so my point is, yes, he has to get out of the bloody house, clean your bloody room, and then leave your bloody room in that order, because you can't live like that. And of course, the government tried to get us to live like that, and they hold a certain amount of responsibility. Anyways, in the end, the way I left was my wife told me, if you carry on like this, I'm going to divorce you. Stop writing about Carl Jung while looking at Soviet art. So I hope that's helpful in some way. (laughs) Thank you. That's very helpful, Dr. Peterson. And the last one I've got for you today, uh, this was asked of Mariella Frostrop on the 14th of March, 2021. Recently, the relationship I have with my mum and dad has become very strained. They are in their mid-70s and they voted for Brexit, which has been a sticking point ever since. Each time we talk, it ends up being about politics. Coupled with that, they were COVID lawbreakers. They regularly had extended family inside their house. And my mother was offended that I would only stand on the doorstep wearing a mask to visit her. I used to have a happy relationship with them, but now I can't bear them because of their views. What should I do? Huh. Well, this has become a typical question in my clinical practice ever since events like Brexit and then the pandemic it's a, it's a problem. I, I've had conflict with my own family, and it's not easy. It's difficult, especially because my daughter's completely insane. But Brexit and COVID have caused, well, <coughs> what can you do? I guess one thing you can do is not talk about politics. Why does everything have to be bloody politics all the time? And the other option is simply stop speaking to your family, because in some <laughs> cases they just... Your family just uh, just are pricks, and that's the bottom line. And sometimes, but, you know, we have to appreciate our family because, you know, they've done a lot for us. And the, the Bible says, honor your mother and father. And when I think about all the things that people have done for us in previous generations, especially the men working on the infrastructure, <laughs> I get emotional because they're out there keeping the Internet working. And anyways, I hope that helps. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. That was extremely helpful. I look forward to talking to you again next week with some genuine problems from our listeners. Thank you. Yes, please send in your problems because I need to uh, take some time to not think about myself and my 
struggles I've had in the Russian hospital taking Benzedrine. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Peterson. That was an honor. Hopefully he'll be back next week to answer some of your uh, authentic questions. Those are just ones that we thought would be of general interest. Send in your questions for Ask Dr. Peterson next week. And Toby, you've got to go, I believe. But let's just... And I guess they, 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 can, send them, they can send them to thedailyskeptic at gmail.com. T-H-E dailyskeptic at gmail.com. Okay. Uh, do, do we have time for a couple of reviews, Nick? Yeah, let's do a couple of reviews because you're the one that's got to go, Toby. So Toby's got his usual mouse. I've got to go in a sec, yeah. He's, uh, I'll, but I'll just quickly go over a couple of reviews because these were really, really good. So one of them is probably my favorite review of all time. This podcast is seriously good. I don't get much time to get the skeptic site up on my phone and start reading. So this serves as a great summary of all the weird things going on in this week in, in our world. Toby is a workhorse of getting ideas and news out. And I wonder when this guy sleeps or has any other fun other than serving us masses. He is the suave English gentleman still in hope that it's all just people ballsing up their jobs all the time and doing so and doing so rubbish at their core job that they just get another high flying job. Just like all of us that get away with messing up our jobs day in, day out and rise up the ladder. So, of course, that's possible. Nick is incredibly funny and a bit more willing to shed his life of hopes and dreams that there isn't evil being done every day. I like Nick's honesty and self-deprecating comedy about how he conducts himself in his personal life. It sounds hard being Nick, it is, but we love you and all your important comedic work when it's needed most. And uh, yeah, and it goes on from there and it basically says it's a, it's a, a must listen. So thank you very much. And that's from Brett LeBoff. Thank you for that, Brett. And you, you yeah, came out well in that one. Come up well, I shouldn't complain. Yeah, suave English gentleman. I like that. We can perhaps use that next week instead of scourge of the establishment. Um, but um, if you if you if you read out praise for your self deprecating humour often enough, at some point <laughs> the penny's going to drop, isn't it? You're going to realise this is all a bit of false modesty. Yeah, yeah, there, there is an element of that. And there's just one other review I liked, which said, uh, "Toby Rent Boy, Toby Rent Boy, Toby Rent Boy." Whoa, whoa. But then it said, "Love you both." So. You know, I think it was only in jest. I don't think they were really calling an actual, an actual rent boy there, Toby. But um, it was a reference to the the chant we talked about at QPR. It was uh, it was in, wasn't that serious? But yeah, and, yeah. Uh, go on. I've had some other. Yeah, someone else has said a Chelsea supporter has said the chant is Chelsea rent boys. Um, so um, uh, it, it, it's not a reference um, to uh, Chelsea um, players. Uh, using the services of young male prostitutes. It's comparing the Chelsea players to young male prostitutes. But I'm quite sure because rent could be a verb, couldn't it? Chelsea rent boys. It could be not part of a noun, but a verb. Anyway, I expect it is part of a noun, but I think it does vary in different terms. The QPR has um, Chelsea rent boys, Chelsea rent boys, oh, oh, Chelsea rent boys. So it's slightly different. No, we have. That's the one we have. (laughs) Chelsea rent boys. Whoa, whoa. You said yours was slightly different. Oh, anyway, it's all it's all a bit confused. But yeah, I always assume we're calling the opposite side and their fans rent boys. That's what I sort of assumed it was. Obviously, I never part of it. Anyway, that's that. I know. We, no, so we, 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 we have Chelsea are rent boys. Yeah. everywhere they go. Yeah, that's a different one. Slightly that's a different, different one. Oh, so you do anyway. have the other one as well. You do have Chelsea rent boys. Whoa, whoa. No, actually, I don't. That's I got confused. No, we no, just we have, have that. Chelsea are rent boys. Yeah, you have. Yeah, that one. I, I think that's the one that's chanted at Chelsea Football Ground by visiting fans. Okay, good. Well, we should do another section. Yeah, we clear that up. Let's have a whole <laughs> section on that next week. That could be a regular feature. Um, are Chelsea indeed rent boys? Um, 
So I think that's most of it. Of course, I just want to quickly mention my new podcast, guys. Toby's let me do this. It's called The Current Thing with Nick Dixon. It's a very funny title. It gets that seriousness of covering the culture war and politics, but with a funny element. Looks like Toby's got to go, though. In, he's got to go and do his uh, GB News appearance. But anyway, listen to my podcast, The Current Thing. I just had Andrew Bridgen on. And we've got a massive guest next week as well. And there's a video on Twitter and on Rumble. But the audio is The Current Thing. is currentthingpod.podbean.com. And it's available on nearly all platforms except Apple, Spotify, all those. You can find it on Podbean, Spotify, all those many platforms. Amazon, Apple will be up soon. Google's just up. Toby, anything you want to add? No, just go to the Daily Skeptic. Please donate if you enjoy what we do. And if you haven't joined the Free Speech Union yet, www.freespeechunion.org. Yeah, and my podcast called The Current Thing. And until next week, guys, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. <laughs> <laughs>